The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Hello and welcome to a special edition episode of Setting the Record Straight, a podcast of the Reconstructionist Radio Network. I am Russell Trawick and I pastor Christ Covenant Church, a Christian Reconstructionist congregation that is currently being transplanted into Sweeney, Texas. Let's start with the episode today. I have entitled today's episode, Church Authority, Membership and More, Oh My! Lately, there has been a great amount of discussion regarding ecclesiology, the theology-slash-doctrine of the church, and church authority. I come from perhaps a more unique perspective because of my background in the church, church government, and church leadership. Coming from a Southern Baptist background of democratic congregational-led church government, where the pastor-elder is relegated to an elected employee to a place of Christian Reconstructionism with an elder-led church government where pastors are elders with equal or greater authority to the other elders. I come to this discussion with over 20 years of experience as a pastor in the local church and quite a journey to go with it. When it comes to church government, I've seen abuses on both sides. One, on the side of congregational government, I've seen where sin runs rampant through sexual sin, the spreading of lies, divisions and factions, and all types of depravity within the church never going addressed, while the widow, orphan, and poor are neglected. I have seen a repentant pastor who was arrested for a DUI after two beers and barely over the limit, treated as a criminal and without church trial, but tried in the court of public opinion and Assumption and ousted from the pulpit without pay the very next day. Yet I've seen an unrepentant pastor who caught, uh, who was caught with the sin of uh, major pornography addiction, primarily teenage pornography, and refusing counseling and brotherly love, allowed to resign quietly with several months of pay and claiming under the auspices of needing to take care of his wife and her illness. And instead of receiving counseling, he goes on to be a Christian school teacher with teenagers. Two, on the side of elder-led church government, I've seen abuse of authority with an assumed power over the families within the local congregation. I've seen elders penetrate and undermine the authority of the husband and father and a family and impress their unbiblical authority over another man's wife and children, while I have also seen cases where elders have not been a fail-safe for the wife and children of a physically or sexually abusive husband, father, in the name in the, their time of need and protection. These elders' authority, quote-unquote authority, goes unchecked and without accountability, while the lowly members of that congregation are required to submit to this ungodly, unchecked, and unaccountable authority. You might think you're sensing some hostility toward the local church and church government from me, which might lead you to assume I or perceive I'm some kind of anarchist, but 
I think you really need to listen carefully to what I have fully to say before making judgments. Yes, there are some positive things that come from both of these forms of church government. But I believe one form of church government in particular is actually biblical and the other humanistic in its approach. But that is another topic for discussion. First, I want to address authority in the church and the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. There are two scriptures that come to mind and may have, many have been throwing around them around. The first is Hebrews thirteen seventeen, which reads, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy not, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The second scripture is 1 Peter 2, 9-10, through 10, which reads, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are, a pe- you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. One, let us look at the context in which we find Hebrews thirteen seventeen. By looking a bit before at verses 7 through 9, which read, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which you have not benefited which have not benefited those devoted to them. Then it goes to verse 17, which says, To obey your leaders and submit to them. What are we to obey and submit to them in? In everything? Everything they say? Everything they command? Everything they declare? In every sphere of life? No. We are to obey and submit in regards to every word they speak, which corresponds to the word of God. And even though they are pastors or elders, does their position give authority over the layman in every area and sphere of life? Absolutely not. The local church leadership has not authority over the family or the state or education, or all, although it can influence each of these spheres by its teaching. Now, just because there is a limit on church authority does not mean there is no such thing as church authority. In fact, if you'll bear with me, let let me share with you a few things R.J. Rushton, who wrote in his systematic theology in regards to the doctrine of the church, authority. Rushton, he said, In the church, much of the problem can be viewed from the perspective of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. This is problematic in many regards when there is an improper understanding of authority from both the layman and the leaders. First, an improper understanding of the priesthood of believers reveals a heart of rebellion that can lead many astray. Second, this rebellion is in reality a rebellion against God and what he ordered and purpose for his church, and rebellion against God only has one end result— the wrath and judgment of God. 
Third, the basic and simple premise of this type of rebellion is equal authority of all people, not just the priesthood of all believers. Many times the affirmation of the priesthood of believers extends beyond God's intentions toward an evil purpose. Rushton wrote in his Systematic Theology, There is a difference between priesthood and authority. Priesthood is a calling, one common to all believers. The priest dedicates himself and all that he possesses or represents to God. Basic to the priesthood is access to God. Every believer who has the atonement has access to God and is called to dedicate himself and his domain to the Lord. A careful examination of the Old Testament gives no evidence of any governing power over men by the priest of Israel. That such a power developed later is an aberration, not an aspect of biblical law. Authority did exist among priests, some ruling over others. But because authority is common to every realm. It's not a specific attribute of any one realm. In very simple terms, the priesthood of all believers means that a child can approach the Lord in prayer as readily as a father or mother. But this equal access does not invalidate the parental authority. On the contrary, precisely where this equal access exists, authority is most stressed and respected. Thus, Exodus 21.17 says, And he that curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Both priesthood of all believers and the authority of men in their spheres is God-given. We cannot affirm the one without affirming the other. You see, we must understand that contempt for godly authority is contempt for God. Rushdie also said, All too commonly on the current scene, contempt for godly authority is seen as a mark of intellectual and religious freedom. Every church today faces a crisis in that godly authority is replaced by ungodly authoritarianism and anarchism. Rebellion frequently parades under the banner of righteous indignation and protest. Given the prevalence of ungodly authoritarianism in church and state, how do we contend against such an evil? We can only do so lawfully, i.e. in the terms of God's law. As we have seen, Exodus 21.17 pronounces a fearful penalty against an evil and rebellious son. It should be noted in passing that in the biblical law, treason is not against the state, but against the family, which is God's basic institution. Hence, offenses against the family and marriage are treason. The Ten Commandments declare, Honor thy father and mother, that thy days, that your days may be long in, upon the land which the Lord had, the God, thy God had given thee. Exodus 20.12 The requirement is to honor, not necessarily to obey. Unconditional obedience belongs to God alone. A true priesthood of all believers obeys God and recognizes his lordship or sovereignty in all things. The apostolic principle is we ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. In terms of this, the apostles did challenge both Judea and Rome, not in rebellion, but in terms of God's authority and a just premise of law and order. The modern rebellion against authority is destructive in every sphere, never constructive. It's revolutionary and disintegrative in all its ways. The doctrine of the priesthood of all believers places men under godly authority to discharge their calling under God. We have today in the church a fearfulness to exercise godly authority as well as a prevalence of humanistic authoritarianism. Rushdie went on to say a little further, authority is a fact of life. 
The parent has an unavoidable authority over a child, an employer over an employee, and the captain of the ship over the stokers. To deny godly authority is to affirm death. We live in a death-oriented culture, Proverbs 8.36, and contempt for authority is a clear mark of it. One telling evidence of this hatred of authority is love by many of asserting their supremacy by attacking all authorities. No one is good enough for them to accept or submit to. Their delight is to prove their own righteousness by finding fault with all others. All they do besides demonstrating their own sinfulness is to manifest their love of death. All authority in Scripture and all obedience is from God and to God. All false doctrines seek to displace authority and obedience from God to man. Every, with every man, his own God and law, authority collapses. This is a consequence of explicit humanism. Implicit humanism maintains a godly facade but makes human authority central. The greatest human authority is by virtue of his position and power all the more under God's authority than lesser men. Authority gives only godly privileges, and it gives and requires great responsibilities. Rushdie's last statement is one that matters. Authority is not only a reality, but it's one that comes with privileges from God and additional responsibility to God. Therefore, when we read Hebrews thirteen seventeen, and it says, as those who will have to give an account, we need to remember this. We to obey and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The writer of Hebrews denotes obedient submission to these and submission to these teachers of God's law word, and as far as their godly authority extends, we are not to rebel against that authority. This is where the other side of the struggle in the church begins. How far does that authority extend? A central point that must be understood is that the priesthood of believers includes both the leaders and the laymen. The word for church or congregation in the Hebrew is kohal, and in Greek it's ekklesia. In the Christian sense, the ekklesia is an assembly of persons gathering together, uh, the assembly of persons together by God through Christ, united by common purpose to serve the Lord with a common faith. Rush Day points out in his systematic theologies on the doctrine of the church, laymen and the church, that the church is God's covenant people. These people are the recipients, recipients and channels of God's real presence and glory on earth. They are soldiers in God's war against the powers of darkness, the heirs of God's kingdom, and the possessors of eternal life. The church is thus not essentially a building or an institution, although both can be manifestations of its life. It is a covenant people who believe and apply the covenant law word to all of life and who seek to bring men, nations, and all spheres of life under the dominion of Christ as Lord. Thus, while the church may be a building and an institution and can both can be important and needed aspects of its life, it is primarily a power and a government at work in the world. Let's remember what 1 Peter 2.9-10 says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but you now you have received mercy. 
When we speak of the priesthood of believers and the church, we are describing a people that carry a living faith into every sphere of life and thought. So the Christian man and woman do not leave the church when they walk out of the building. For as Rushton, he wrote, if it, if it is not his life and his calling, then he is never in the church on Sundays either. Rushton went on to say, We have seen that every man is called to be an elder, an elder over his family and in his calling. The synagogue, and for a time the church, was constituted when ten heads of households, elders, came together. It is the elders who established established the church as an institution. To this day, in many denominations, the pastor is not and cannot be a member of the local church. He is its teacher and pastor, but it's laymen who are the members. The church cannot be restricted to the place of teaching nor to the teaching ministry. It's a dominion ministry, and this dominion is to be manifested in their life and the work of the members. You see, the purpose of the church is not to be directed to building up an institution, but purposefully purposefully establishing God's saving power in the lives of the congregation and in the lives of others, bringing dominion into the lives of every man and every institution. The members of a church are the people of the living God who are charged with furthering God's reign and His government. So how does this happen? Well, we must begin at the point of evangelism or, 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 making, or the making of disciples. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Evangelism is the most basic task of the church, and it's stressed greatly today, but it also, also must be followed by application. Application is about mutual responsibility and care for the church. Rushton wrote, as members of one another, Christians need to care for one another, for the sick, the elderly, the needy, and the troubled. Visitation is not in Scripture the duty of pastors, but of Christians. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one through forty-six. If it is a sin in the eyes of, the, of Paul for members at a communion love feast to segregate, the, segregate themselves from others, is it not a sin when it is done in all of the life of the church? First Corinthians eleven seventeen through twenty-one. The church cannot be an exclusive fellowship. While it requires a separation from sin and unbelief unto the Lord, it clearly does not mean a separation into social classes within the church. The work of the people, you see, within the, con- within the church local is to be one of unity. My favorite scripture which undergirds our local church covenant is Ephesians 4, 1-6, through 6, which reads, I, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all, I believe it would be a great help if churches would begin to understand this, that, this scripture and found themselves upon it. It is a scripture that unites the church local as we go abroad, while at the same time fully recognizing the priesthood of all believers and that it, that God is 
over all and through all and in all. And not just an elite few who are overseers of a congregation. For 1 Corinthians 10.17 says, There is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of this one bread. Furthermore, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12 outlines simplistically the duties of the members of the church local. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love... You have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Here's a few more insights from Rushdie's systematic theology. First, that the will of God is the sanctification of every member, their growth in holiness, not gained by spiritual exercises, but by the practical application of God's law word to the, to, to the totality of their lives and world. Second, this application begins in their marital lives. Holiness means sexual purity. Third, there must be strict honesty in all the dealings with one another. Fourth, it means living honestly, quietly, and industriously. Fifth, to live in such a manner brings the blessings of God, and we then have lack of nothing. Sixth, all of this holiness and training in godly living gives the Christian the ability to common respect in the outside world and to be an effectual witness to the Lord and to the way of holiness. The fellowship of faith within the church flows out towards the world in grace, love, and witness of the gospel. The schooling within the household of faith prepares us for dominion in the world at large. Therefore, God has a purpose, let's, let's understand, for both leaders and laity in the church. Yet at the same time, every man ought to be an elder, first over his family, and then secondly, in the local church. Yes, not all men are there yet, I understand that, but ultimately that is the responsibility given to pastors and teachers in Ephesians 4, 11-16, where it says Christ gave apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be, tossed, be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This means that the elders of a congregation are not to be the paid elite with certificates notating their superiority from institutions of greater knowledge, but every faithful, God-fearing man in that congregation that meets the criteria of Scripture. If this is not the purpose of the elders, leaders, or pastors in your local congregation, then I challenge you to call them out on it. If they will not listen, call them to repent of their God-given responsibility. And if they still won't listen, find a new local church or start one. This brings me to my last and possibly lengthy point. Local church membership. I have heard comments such as, It doesn't matter if you have to drive 50 minutes or 50 miles. That's not a great sacrifice. You need to be part of a uh, part part of a member of a local church, or to not be a member of a local church or under their authority is to live in rebellion and sin. And for someone to desire to live in such a way reveals the downfall of their libertarianism, and are but anarchist and against God's purpose and commands. Now I know this seems like statements or these statements are a stretch, but the they are true examples of how much reasoning regarding church membership and church authority is paraded about even in Christian reconstructionist circles. First, that which denotes church membership is not a local mindset, but a universal one. I am not talking about universalism or even ecumenicalism, but rather the church, the body and bride of Christ. Think about what I am saying. What church was Paul a part of? I know that it can be argued that Paul was different because he was not only an apostle but also a missionary and had no specific place of residence in which his calling would lead him to be a member. Yet, when Paul wrote his epistles to the churches of Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Corinth, and so on, is he writing to one specific local church gathering or the gathering of the church in those cities? I know it's debatable to an extent, but I believe it's important to note that there was more than one church elder in each town that is responsible for teaching God's word. Acts 14, 9-13 says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered into the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. And when he had preached the gospel of that city and made disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and uh, saying that many, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had what? Appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We also find Paul writing to Titus in Titus 1, 4-9. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God to the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete. Why? So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery uh, or insubordination. For an, insubor- for an overseer, as God's st- steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and dis- disciplined. He must hold what firmly to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to what give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It is important that there be God-fearing, accountable men in every town to rightly divide Scripture and equip saints. But that is not an argument for local church membership and submission to authority. We have noted that this submission goes as far as upholding and teaching God's Word. This submission is not to an elite few, but rather than when we gather locally or abroad, it is mutual submission. Ephesians 5.15-21 tells us, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another within psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God and Father, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You must see, you must understand, I am not arguing against the local gathering of the church because I recognize and submit to God's word in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 when it exhorts us and let us consider how to stir one another up another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. However, I am arguing that the intent of Scripture is not membership in the local church institution nor unconditional submission to its elders. This is the point of contention that I have had as a pastor for quite some time, which confirms many of the fears of those who oppose elder-led churches. According to proponents of the you-must-be-a-member-of-the-local-church crowd and submit to its leader's authority, I find they have not thought through their argument. Are they saying that that as someone that believes in a covenantal view of both baptism and communion, I must go to the only church local to myself and submit myself and my family to the teaching and authority of that local church that teaches contrary to not only our mere personal conviction or beliefs, but we believe, what we believe to be the very covenantal commands of God. Am I supposed to go against that? What about going to the local evangelical or non-denominational Armenian church that, doctor, that doctrinally week after week is preaching another gospel and leading the masses toward the gates of hell? What about going to the local Presbyterian church as a woman pastor or women elders? Well, that's different, right? Oh, I, I know. I've read the comments. Just pick up your family and drive 50 minutes or 50 miles until you find a good church. Well, folks, that can't happen in every city, in every county, in every state. I live in Texas, and there are a bunch of churches here. A bunch. But at the same time, there are places that are very spread out and doctrinally diverse, 
In addition, driving those distances doesn't build. Let me back up here real quick. They're doctrinally diverse. And in many times, they're not only diverse in their doctrine, but why would I put my family and my children under a teaching that's unbiblical and confusing to my children? Wouldn't it be better to stay home? In addition, driving those distances doesn't build a biblical community of faith where you have all things in common with proper fellowship as in Acts 2, 42-47. In fact, let's be honest. Just because you're on the membership role of a church local doesn't mean there will be anything more than a worship service offered. In reality, most churches have little to no true fellowship in the biblical sense of community. In addition, when, ne- when necessary, they will never enact any form of church discipline for unrepentant, unrighteous acts, while many in the reform circles, out of false piety and false authority, enact church discipline way too often. But let's try to stay on track. Now, I'm not saying that we cannot have fellowship together and that we cannot study God's Word, but if you're saying that someone who discerns Scripture and its application better than the local church pastor and other elders should come and submit to their authority and teaching, then that is a problem. How does one submit to authority over God's Word that doesn't exist? I served with a pastor once that was literally reading from a highlighted sections of a commentary. He was putting no effort in preparing for the Sunday sermon, but going after what was easy and uninspired of God. When I questioned him, he basically acted as if, how dare I question him because he was the senior pastor and I was the lowly youth minister. In fact, in all my years of serving on church staff, I only had one pastor who treated me as an equal Before you decide to crucify me, I am not saying this out of boastful pride, but I want us to realize that the purpose of the church local is not membership at all. For according to Romans 12.5 and Ephesians 4.25, we are members of one another already because what? We belong to Christ. Here are a few things regarding the purpose of the church. One, the purpose of the gathering of the church local is is the equipping of saints and strategic kingdom building under the authority of Christ Jesus as found in Matthew 28, 18-20. Most often this is not done by gathering at the local denominational institutional church. Two, the purpose of the biblical church membership is about the unity of the body of Christ. It's about welcoming those belonging to the church universal as if they have always been a part of the church local. In various times, Paul's letters, he exhorts the church, the church local, receiving the letter to welcome and care for, care for and use those who are the letter bearers who are part of the church universal. It's about working with, having correspondence with, honoring decisions of church discipline, including excommunication from another church local, or at least investigating if such discipline is warranted. Our church local. Our our local church has been a part of such a case regarding sexual abuse of a child. There were multiple witnesses, and under biblical law, the perpetrator stood convicted after being investigated by representatives of three separate churches working together. Any penalty would have to be handed down by the state, but the church is not impotent in these matters. 
Working together, the perpetrator was excommunicated with a letter giving a directive that no church afford them membership nor allow them to be married again within their congregations. Their spouse was given a writ of biblical divorce and freedom to remarry if they chose. This letter was sent out to numerous churches within Texas and other states amongst the brethren. It was the church local acting in unity as the church universal. Multiple denominations were involved in making these decisions and in receiving and upholding the decisions. There was complete cooperation regardless of our stances on secondary issues of doctrine and where there were questions or lack of understanding in regards to God's law word. It gave opportunity for biblical instruction and ultimately the body of Christ to church universal in these matters. Why is this important? It's because it is an illustration that biblical church membership has to do with the unity of the body of Christ in submission to God and His law word over the authority of any man or any church local. Our actions aided and guided the civil magistrate in this case toward their biblical responsibility. We did not fail in ours, regardless of the decisions of the civil magistrates. Yet, church discipline or excommunication is more than nothing more than an aspect of that in particular situations is necessary, but this is not the purpose of the church local or universal. Well, then how will a church local hold people accountable unless they are members of the local church and submitting to its authority? There are some things you need to quickly acknowledge then. First, a person who is abusing a child or a spouse or having an unrepentant adulterous affair is already not submitting to the authority of God at His word. Second, if they continue in the rebellion against God's authority, what makes you think that they will submit to the authority of the church local leadership? Third, having their name on the local church roll or having them sign a covenant commitment card to the local church annually will not change anything. Do we really think a piece of paper or a verbal pledge will actually hold the lawless accountable? The only thing that will hold the lawless accountable is a people who are well equipped to handle God's law word rightly and seek to keep the unity of the faith in the body of believers by dealing rightly with those who seek to adulterate the unity in the church local and the church universal by their lawless deeds. Let me be very clear on that. Let me repeat what I just said. The only thing that will hold the lawless accountable is a people who are well-equipped and trained to handle God's law word rightly and seek to keep the unity of the faith in the body of believers by dealing rightly with those who seek to adulterate that unity in the church local and the church universal by their lawless deeds. So let's close with a few highlights. First, God has appointed Elders, leaders, pastors, and teachers in the church local and given them authority in regards to Scripture. And we are commanded to obey and submit to them in as far as their biblical authority extends to the Word of God and in church discipline. Second, the same Holy Spirit that dwells within the church leadership dwells amongst all the laity. The doctrine of the priesthood of all believers teaches that we have equal access to the Lord our God and the ability to discern Scripture. Third, the doctrine of the priesthood of believers does not permit rebellion against God's ordained purpose for the leadership of the church local, 
But at the same time, it does not allow for unchecked and unaccountable abuses by leadership over the spheres of the family and state and education. Fourth, membership is not as much about the church local as it is the church universal. The church local is a representation of the church universal and not the other way around. Acts 2, 42-47 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The focus of the church local is the same as that of the church universal, to equip the saints for service to the Lord and strategic kingdom building through the making of disciples and placing every area of life under the authority of God's law word and our Lord Jesus Christ. The church local is to do the work, to work in unity with the church universal in this effort. This means just because someone doesn't have their name on a, on a local church membership role doesn't mean they are radical, rebellious, anarchist sinners without any authority over them and should not be taken seriously. Most mature or maturing Christians will submit to biblical instruction from their brethren, whether local or abroad, whether a church leader or laity. If they don't, there are, there are actions that can be taken, including removing fellowship locally and abroad, removing fellowship on social media and the like. I believe the greatest struggle that people have with this concept is that it seems to diminish the identity of the church local. And I will seek to address this in the near future, but I believe this is the problem of autonomy and autonomous uniqueness that seeks to put greater emphasis on the identity of the individual local denominational institutional gathering rather than our collective identity with Christ Jesus as a church universal. In Christ, the individual's that die in him can live in him. We go from being illegitimate children to sons by adoption, becoming heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Our identity is no longer our own. It is in God through Christ Jesus. Autonomy is a fleshly idea that seeks to raise the identity of the individual above the whole of God's congregation. Autonomous local denominational institutional churches do the same. They choose to honor the unique identity over the, over the ultimate uniqueness of identity in Christ that, came, that the church universal is to uphold. As I said, I'll address this in the future, but I challenge you to evaluate and identify the struggle you have over church membership, authority, and accountability. Could it be that you and your church local have withdrawn so far from the church universal through autonomy? to the point that you're creating unbiblical safety nets to defend where you stand instead of turning from autonomy and coming back to the identity of the church universal. Something to think about until next time. God bless you and yours. 
Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. 